Hello, and welcome back to Wisconsin Law in Action, a podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship with University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is distinguished professor Michelle Levine. Thank you for joining me, Professor Levine. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely, anytime. Today, Professor Levine will be talking with me about her new article, Under the Hood, Brendan Dassey, Language Impairments and Judicial Ignorance, which she co-authored with Dr. Sally Miles, a Madison-based speech pathologist. Okay, so let's begin with some background. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about Making a Murderer, what it is, and Brendan Dassey's role in it? Sure, and it couldn't be more timely since uh, we're sitting here the day after Brendan Dassey's lawyers have filed a petition for clemency with Governor Evers. So back in 2005, Teresa Halbach was killed. And Stephen Avery was charged. Ultimately, about six months later, his nephew, his 16-year-old nephew, Brendan Dassey, was charged. Um, he, was, he was convicted based primarily on his confession. When uh, Making a Murderer came out, everybody got to see what that confession looked like. And what you saw was an impaired kid being cajoled, harassed, harangued, and coerced into confessing in a way that was honestly nothing short of disgraceful. Um, you know, in a cynical mood, you could say this kid would have confessed to killing Abraham Lincoln. It was really something to see. And the show is also about Stephen Avery. People really are mixed on Stephen Avery. Do they think that he was framed? Do they not? But people were almost unanimous that what happened to Brendan Dassey was a disgrace, and he is still in prison right now. Mm -hmm. And so the the petition in front that's going in front of Governor Evers, what are they trying to do with that? They've asked either that his sentence be commuted, uh, because Brendan was given a life sentence with first eligibility for parole, I think at 45 years, um, when he's almost 60, or for or for a pardon. Um, Sally, Miles, and I are both deeply honored that there's a lot of discussion of our scholarship and our article actually in that petition. Mm -hmm. That's great, yeah, because this article takes a deep, deep dive into what just went wrong and what was really, I'm going to stick with wrong as my adjective here, yes. about the techniques used to interrogate Brendan Dassey. Um, so I think we kind of know this, but I'm going to ask you anyway, what inspired you to write this particular article? Well, you actually have to back up... Um, about 10 years I had started doing some work on language impairments, I found out almost by accident that a huge percentage or, yeah, really a substantial percentage of people coming through the criminal and juvenile justice systems have impaired or underdeveloped language skills. And not surprisingly, it, it affects them in everything from the way bail is set to the way they deal with their lawyers to the way that they're sentenced. At the same time, the legal system actually doesn't know very much about these. So I started doing some research on this. I wrote a couple articles about it. Um, along comes Making a Murderer, and, and I watched it. I specifically watched episode four, where they show Brendan being interrogated. And like everybody else, I was pretty shocked at what I saw. But I thought it would be really interesting to have a speech-language perspective on it. So I contacted Sally Miles, who has a PhD in, in speech-language pathology, and I said, would you take a look at this? 
And she's the kind of person who wouldn't in a million years have been watching Making a Murderer. Well, she was beyond shocked. You know, the next thing she knew, she had watched it all. She'd watched, she'd gone online and had found the interviews. And she really was horrified at what she saw. She saw a clearly impaired kid. And, and as a PhD level clinical, clinical speech language pathologist, she knew what she was looking at. She saw someone who struggled with processing, someone who was struggling with understanding, someone who was struggling with expression, being buffaloed by two cops who frankly never stopped talking. And more frightening to her was that he was in there by her, by himself. Um, based on that, we started talking. She said, you know, we could do a discourse analysis. We could analyze what was said in there. And she had access to some uh, language, a language transcription company that uses software that was actually developed here. It's, it was actually based... Um, it's based in Madison. It was developed by somebody from our Communication Sciences and Disorders Department here at the University of Wisconsin. And we had that we, we had it done. The numbers came back and they were shocking and the next thing you know, here we are. Yeah. yeah. And the the numbers I agree is what really jump out of you in this article to see the data that is underlying just how this interview went and how this interrogation technique really works. Uh, so when you were writing this, what were the what was most surprising to you about the data or about the writing process itself or your conclusions? Um, well, well, you start with this was a true collaboration. Um, Sally really wasn't familiar with the, with the legal system, mm -hmm. and so we had to share our perspectives back and forth. So, for example, I would talk to her about what the police were doing, and I I kept using the term read technique, which is a common and controversial interrogation technique used primarily in the United States. Actually, most other countries don't use it because it's considered unreliable and, and inherently coercive. Um, and she kept saying, you keep calling this a technique. This can't be a technique. That, that interviewing in her world is actually highly regulated by rules, that it involves constant training, retraining, observation, and it's, you know, it's as much of a science as it is a so-called art. There are, really are rules for doing this, especially for interviewing kids and super especially for de dealing with kids who have an impairment like Brandon has. And uh, so she kept saying, you're calling it a technique. This can't be a technique. I said, no, it's a technique. And she said, no, it's not. <laughs> Not a technique. So we went back and forth that it was a right. technique. That's, it's so, challenging because, like, technique in one world does not yeah, equal right. what technique means in another world. Th that's right. I mean, she just she thought this was sheer madness <laughs> that, that such a thing was allowed. So that was surprising. Um, the other thing is, it was actually quite easy to find out how impaired Brendan was. It was in the court record. Mm -hmm. There's no, there hadn't been much said about it. They kept saying he has an intellectual impairment, but you never really knew much about it. Um, but there sitting in the record were his, his uh, special ed records, and specifically there was a speech-language assessment, that, which was actually part of his special ed program. And you could see that this kid was in the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. I mean, he, he could function in a fashion, but his ability to deal verbally is severely, severely compromised. And there it was, sitting right there in the court record. Right, it's all right there. There's no, yes. They're not hiding the ball here. It's just no. out there. Yeah, except nobody knew what that ball was. Uh -huh. Yeah. 
So you're sitting there, and it's almost like a black box. Like, we have this piece of evidence, but what does that mean? It doesn't matter. We're going to interrogate this person, Brendan, like it's right. just our regular technique. Well, and day. I don't know what the police knew. They maintained that they could tell he was fine. And they said some, <laughs> some of the things they said were so odd. Um, on post-conviction, the, the police were asked, did, you know, did they recognize that he had limitations? No, he seemed fine. He was in regular classes, and he takes driver's ed. Driver's ed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he can be fine in yeah. interrogation. It's crazy. It was crazy. So before we get even deeper into this article, I want to take one step back and talk about your background a little bit. Okay. Uh, you were talking about how you were discussing with Dr. Miles how things work in the criminal procedure world. Uh, can you give us a little bit more background on you and what makes you so qualified to discuss that with Dr. Miles? Well, uh, I grew up as a public defender. Before I came to the law school, I was a public defender, and I represented, uh, I don't know how many thousands of people. Um, I came over to the law school and continued work representing individuals who were incarcerated in the Wisconsin State Prison System. I'm now in charge of the Public Defender Project. Um, if you, you don't have to scratch the surface much to see that, in the end, I'm a public defender. Right, right. It, it boils to the top as you're, as you're listening to. I was lucky enough to be in Professor Levine's class, and uh, it was not easy. It, it was easy to identify the public defender that dwells within Professor Levine. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it, it doesn't hide. <laughs> and that's okay. I think that's a positive thing in this case especially. Um, so what do you think distinguishes this article? What will make this article stand out when you're talking about making a murder and Brendan Dassey in particular? Because there's a lot of stuff that talks about this already. So what makes this much more special? This, this well, it isn't an attempt. It, it succeeds because of Sally's amazing work in quantifying and describing in detail exactly what his disability is. It isn't a generic term, he's got intellectual limitations or intellectual impairments, cognitive impairments. No, we know exactly what they are, we know how deep they are, we know how they operate. And it also quantifies exactly what the police did. You can look at it and say, boy, it seems like that's kind of crazy, it seems like they're forcing him to talk, it seems like they're doing most of the talking. Oh no, now we have the numbers. We have the numbers, so in a three-hour interview, they asked him over 1,500 questions. It came out to like six to seven questions a minute for a kid who's got a severe verbal disability. You might as well hit him over the head with a hammer six to seven times a minute. I don't want to be asked that many questions by anyone, especially over such a short period of time. No, no, you don't. No, you don't. And here it is, high stakes, and it was just rapid fire. Sometimes you'd get three, four, five questions coming in at a time, and it's like, well, what do you want him to answer? What are you asking him? Mm -hmm. This especially seems like, you said quantify. That, to me, seems like the most distinctive thing in this article, because a lot of law scholarship, it's, you know, qualitative, and you're saying, mm -hmm. here's kind of what the, this is what the cases are saying, here are the doctrines, now we have more quantification here. Right. For the, really, for the first time, you can see it. We, if you look at the article, you'll see, uh, you'll see graphs. And you'll see, here's the number of times Brendan spoke. Sally broke down the kinds of questions that were asked. Because in interviewing protocols, there's very strict rules about the kind of questions that you're supposed to ask. They, of course, did it completely backwards and filled this interview with every kind of question you're not supposed to ask. Um, but there it is. It's in there. There's the numbers. You can see it. You can look at it. And you can now get away from an impressionistic sense 
now to a quantitative sense of, oh yeah, this was bad. Mm -hmm. Is there? Let's say you have someone that just says, give me the very brief version of this article. Is there one part of the article you say, here is where you should go to really see the most either outrageous or most effective parts hmm. of what you're arguing? Can I look at this for a sure. minute? Let me look at the article because, of course, I think the whole thing needs to be read and, right. and people need to be outraged. Mm -hmm. But I certainly, there's a couple parts in here. People need to see the graphics that describe mm -hmm. Brent, the level of Brendan's disorder. Mm -hmm. And I think even people who aren't familiar with language disorders will get a quick idea. If you look at the bell curve, he's way down at the point, just about at the point at which the curve disappears down below the, down below the basic line. Um, but then if you look at part seven, the interview, assessment and analysis, even without knowing the rules for a good interview, if you look through there, where you can see Sally taking example after example after example of multiple questions in one, of leading question after leading question of after leading question, multiple choice questions, of her visually comparing best practice and what happened here. You can't miss it. Mm -hmm. You can't miss it. When you see it this way visually, it seems very explicit what was going on. Right. And that's one of the reasons I like it so much, because it, it goes away from the descriptive and impressionistic to here it is. You can't get around it. Mm -hmm. Facts are facts here. These yes, are the numbers. And, and numbers are numbers. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that, that was what I got out of this, too. I was like, this is it. You can't argue around this. Here are no. the numbers. This is what is happening. You had mentioned the read technique earlier in your answer. Can you go into a little bit more detail about what the read technique is and uh, how police apply it? Sure. First of all, <laughs> the term technique in this context is a complete misnomer. In the professional world, the technique is actually scientifically validated, tested, adjusted. Anybody who does it is observed, is tested. They're constantly retested, retrained. None of that happens here. Um, this so-called technique is based upon the folk wisdom that the police are able to decide whether or not a suspect is telling the truth. And they do that by supposed behavioral observation. Well, cops are no better at telling, the, telling whether somebody's telling the truth than you, than me, than the guy in the street. But it starts with that. Once they determine that somebody's telling a lie, that they are not truthful, in other words, they decide whether they're guilty, they then come on to the, the hardcore technique, which is we confront you with your quote-unquote evidence of guilt, even if we're making it up. Um, we, in, we, as police sit around and talk about our superior knowledge, we already know you did it. We know you did it. If you look at the interview with Brendan, I don't know how many times they said, oh, we already know you're guilty. We know. We already know all about it. Um, they are trained to talk over the, def over the defendant, over the suspect. They are trained to interrupt. They don't give them a chance to tell their story. They basically just harangue and harass, um, telling them it's useless to try to deny because we already know, and then they try to show them how much better it will go, and then they start to minimize. There's a number of different psychological, if that's the term you want to use, techniques they use to convince somebody to go along. The most damaging thing about the read technique is the number of times that it's implicated in false confessions. People confess to things they didn't do in response to the read technique. 
Um, it is not accepted in any other country. Canada doesn't use it. The UK doesn't use it. It is widely regarded as so deeply flawed, so inherently coercive that most countries are just saying, we don't use it. We simply don't use it. That is not true in the United States. This is very much not underlying at all, but I'm going to pull it up anyway. So what happens with this technique with someone that has an impairment like Brendan Dassey? He's a sitting duck. Mm -hmm. He, This kid, I'll just talk about him, but there's a whole lot of people like him. That's one of the things we know from the research is that there's a whole lot of Brendans out there. He never stood a chance. Mm -hmm. These people, I mean, they, they pretended to be his friend. They actually went so far as to say, we're not police officers here. We're like your father. Um, they talked about how much they cared about him. They went on and on and on, and they just they just pummeled him with words. And the the reviewing court said, "Well, they didn't yell at him. They didn't, you know, threaten him. They didn't have to. It wasn't necessary. They weaponized their language. And at the end." Sure, he, he said whatever they wanted him. He wanted it over. And to show the extent that, to which he didn't get it when it was over, he says, well, can I go back to school now? Because I have a paper due in its sixth period. Supposedly, this kid has just confessed to rape and murder. And he's saying, so, yeah, I got a paper due. Yeah, that seems to me that if you know that you're confessing to something like that, you're not, like, worried about a paper that is no. due. That's, that's no, yeah. no, and then... You know, later, then he tries to recant, and he says to his mom, they, they got to my head. It's, I mean, it is tragic. Mm -hmm. It's tragic that, that this was allowed. And that speaks to another aspect here that you discuss a little bit in your paper about how Brendan Dassey's in there by himself, and there's oh, no, no one there. Right. And the police say they talked to, to his, you know, they, they asked his mother. His mother didn't understand this. And if you go to another country like England, he would never have been allowed to be in there by himself. In Canada, he wouldn't have been allowed to be in there by himself. It could not have happened. And he was 16, and he was a young, impaired 16. This is, forget madness, this is cruelty. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it seems that this technique can you talk a little bit about why this technique is not used in the UK or in Canada versus in the US? Right. They have discovered that it is coercive and that it gets you unreliable statements. Mm -hmm. Like I said, this kid would have confessed to killing Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. um, because, and that's not to say they don't interrogate in the UK and that they don't interrogate in Canada, but they want to use methods that are the most likely to get reliable, voluntar voluntarily given, sustainable confessions, mm -hmm. if indeed a confession is to be made. They want to know what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I would want my police to find out what happened. For exactly, sure. exactly. And, and so they have a mechanism um, in um, the UK called the peace method where they actually follow some of the rules of interviewing, set back, allow this person to talk, allow them to talk, allow them to talk. Sometimes when someone talks, after a while, they dig their own grave. Mm -hmm. But we want to find out what they know. We don't let the police decide what happened and then have them go after it in a tank, which is essentially what happens here. Mm -hmm. 
So this was released uh, earlier this year in yes. spring, I believe, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So what kind of reaction have you gotten so far, and what kind of reaction do you hope to get going forward? Um, the reaction so far has been very, very positive, no doubt, because it's about Brendan Dassey. You know, there's we show up on Facebook, we show up on Twitter. I want people anywhere and everywhere to read it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, do I hope it helps Brendan Dassey? Absolutely. But there's a bigger issue in that I would really like this information to start going out to judges, to lawyers, to the police. Let's start to incorporate this. As lawyers, we use language. That's all we've got. We don't take blood. We don't have a hammer. We don't have nails. We know almost nothing about it. We know very little about how language operates. We, don't, we have almost no information or knowledge about how language is developed. And we certainly don't, don't know what it means when a person fails to develop language. And that's what you had here. Right. And that leads to the miscarriage of justice that you're exactly Oh, talking. it drives right to it. Yes. It, 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 right. It, 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 I mean, it was funny. The way this, this article came about, I, Sally and I had done the research. We'd talked about it. I'd done some presentations about it. Um, to be honest, we'd be moaning going, oh, we're going to have to write this thing. Um, <laughs> A little over a year ago, I got an email from the editor of the Miscarriages of Justice uh, edition of Albany Law Review. Would we be Did we have anything? And would we be interested in submitting it? We said yes. It gave us a time limit. And the thing got written surprisingly quickly because the data was in mm -hmm. and because we had actually talked this thing to death. We knew what it meant. Um, just we, a matter of putting word to paper. Yes, there. we just had to sit down and do it. And so, you know, I tell the story of how uh, on Christmas Day I sat in my pajamas with my coffee and my little dog down at my feet, and I said, "I'm getting this sucker done," <laughs> and and it was in by by the end of uh, yeah by the end of the year. Wow, that is an amazingly quick turnaround for this kind of article like this. That's I'm amazed. I didn't even I didn't know that ahead of time of this yes. interview. I'm even more impressed. Yeah, no. I, I mean, understand like we had the data, we had the graphs because I had used them when I was doing presentations and we really had talked 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 about what this meant. And you know, we talked about how would this look? How would this look? But if I think about it, we we were first contacted by Albany in July mm. and by the end of December it was it was out. We did have one thing we added later on. We added a little bit of, of a discussion of a particular aspect, but over and out, done. And obviously, you had the passion that was ready to yeah. go to. You had yeah. talked it through. You had the data. You had everything, and you both had the passion to get this thing published. Yes, yes. And, and the other thing is, is I mean, Sally and I are radically different people in in so many respects. Um, but if you look at this article, I, other than what's being discussed in a particular place, you'd have a hard time knowing who wrote what. Our writing, our styles, we were, we were perfect collaborators. Yeah, sometimes you read an article that's co-authored by two, three, four people, and you're like, all right, that is where that person ended, and yes, that person began. Yes. That is not the case. Here. No, no. I mean, we were, we were pretty proud of that. And, and, and I'm going to be honest, I still read through it and go, huh, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good feeling because sometimes you get your stuff published and you're like, oh. Yeah, what was I thinking with yeah. that? What yeah, was I thinking with that? Here. Like peanut butter and jelly, these two writing together. Yeah, I think so. I think we were. I think we were. Good. That's great. So you talked about getting this the word out to judges and attorneys and public defenders. Where can people find more about your work in particular? Well, if you go to my uh, webpage at the law school, then you go to publications, you will see the links to everything I've ever written. So I've got an article about 
uh, deafness, which is actually how I started working in the whole language issue. Um, and then the first two ish, first two articles I wrote about language impairments. Mm. You can find them on there. One, the first one fr from UC Davis, is a general discussion of language impairments, where they come from, how how they show up in the criminal justice system. The next one um, is about the effects of a language impairment when a client is dealing with a lawyer, because I think that's a place where there will be major impact. Right. Um, you know, and it might be just you know. <laughs> saying lawyers are really important, but the truth is the quality of communication with a client impacts justice in ways we actually can't begin to measure. Mm -hmm. And so you can see it starting to narrow down, and then the, th the last thing that will show up will be this one. Great, and we will link both to that faculty page, and we will also link to the Albany Law Review on SSR, your publication on SSRN and the podcast Great. as well. Good, 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 good. And if people have questions, uh, my my emails right in there. They can they can email me, and I'm happy to direct them to resources or answer the questions or do anything I can because um, most people don't know anymore who Amy Semple McPherson was, but she was a, she was an old style evangelist who tromped around the country uh, wearing a white dress and talking in tent revivals. Well, that's kind of who I feel like. I, you know, I'll go anywhere and everywhere to talk about this because. Language impairments and the ability to communicate matter so much, as we can see with this kid. Right. Well, I'm glad you took the time to talk with me, not in a tent outside. <laughs> no. Here in the law no. school. That was not very nice of you to come visit me. Oh, here thanks. In the, in the <laughs> thank you. Here. Thanks. Well, thank you, all you listeners out there, for joining us on Wisconsin Law in Action. We've been talking with distinguished law professor Michelle Levine about her article, Under the Hood, Brendan Dassey, Language Impairments, and Judicial Ignorance. Professor Levine's article can be found on her SSRN page, and a link to that SSRN page, along with all her other works to her faculty biography, will be available along with this podcast at wilawinaction.law.wic.edu. You can subscribe to the Wisconsin Law in Action podcast on the Apple Podcast Store, Stitcher, or Google Play, or find our full archive at, you guessed it, wilawinaction.law.wic.edu. Thank you for listening, and please join us next time as we discuss constitutional law with Professor David Schwartz and his new book, The Spirit of the Constitution. Until then, happy researching.